The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. I encourage you to keep your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we will be studying verses 9 through 11 together. If you were with us last week, you know that we examined 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we saw there that the Corinthian believers were acting in ways that made it difficult to distinguish them from the world, even from pagans. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, we find that there are members going before unbelievers to settle civil cases against church members. And Paul rebukes these members who appeal to people who are unrighteous to make decisions in their favor rather than consulting fellow Christians who are holy. By engaging in litigation, they are acting unrighteously like those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Based on Paul's instruction to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through we will examine two essential reminders for holy living. Two essential reminders for holy living. First, God's kingdom excludes unholy people. See this in verses 9 and 10. And second, God's salvation transforms unholy people. In this text is both a warning and a promise. And I pray that we would receive both of those in these verses. First, we see that God's kingdom excludes unholy people. Look with me at verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? The phrase, don't you know, is used ten times in 1 Corinthians. Paul states here that the Corinthians' behavior suggests that there are fundamental truths about Christian living that they had forgotten and dismissed. There were holes in the Corinthians' holiness and in their wisdom. By taking lawsuits to secular courts instead of handling them internally, the Corinthians are acting unrighteously and unwisely and are mistreating members of the church. Although they are God's saints, they are not acting like God's holy people but like the people of the world. In light of this, Paul issues a warning. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? The unrighteous there in verse 9 are those who do wrong and who do not repent for their wrongdoing. They are those characterized by the world. These, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In order for Paul to say this, we need to understand that in the background of this text is the holiness of God. Why can't the unrighteous inherit the kingdom of God? It's because God is there. And God and sin are incompatible. The wicked have no future with God because He is too pure to be in the presence of evil. Paul continues, Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. In verses 9 and 10, Paul expands on the vice list that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And although this list is not exhaustive, this is a catalog of sins that typically characterize those who are not saved. And I want you to notice in this list that Paul categorizes this list in terms of identity. He doesn't just name a list of sins. He names people who are defined by particular sins. Sexually moral people idolaters, adulterers, and so on. Paul begins this list with sexually immoral people. 
Those who live sexually impure lives. And this includes every kind of sexual relation outside of marriage. Whether it be engaging with prostitutes, fornication, adultery, or homosexuality. Scripture testifies that all sexual activity outside of marriage is evil. And this includes the sin of pornographic consumption. There are eight such vice lists in the New Testament. And in seven of the eight of those lists, there are multiple references to sexual immorality. In most of the passages, some kind of sexual immorality heads the list. You would be hard-pressed to find a sin more frequently, more uniformly, more seriously condemned in the New Testament than sexual sin. As we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 5, unrepentant sexual sin is a matter of church discipline. Paul will continue to instruct the Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And he encourages them in those verses to flee sexual immorality as he condemns sexual relations with prostitutes. Do not be deceived, everyone in the room. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven while indulging in unrepentant sexual immorality. Next, Paul lists idolaters. This is another general and broad term. It is a fundamental sin of choosing to delight in and pursue other than what God has commanded. Adulterers are those who commit sexual acts outside of marriage. Males who have sex with males. This speaks to both participants of male homosexual activity. The Bible condemns female homosexual activity as well. The Bible places homosexual behavior no matter the level of commitment or mutual affection in the category of sexual immorality. Thieves, those who take what belongs to another. Greedy people. The inclusion of greed possibly identifies the motive that incited bringing a legal case against another member. Drunkards, those who abuse alcoholic beverages. Verbally abusive people, those who destroy with their tongues. Swindlers, those who steal indirectly and take unfair advantage of others. Based on the inclusion of thieves, greedy people, swindlers, and Paul's question in verse 7, why not rather be cheated? It is probable that the lawsuit referenced at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6 was business, property, or financially related. Now Paul was aware that most people in Greco-Roman society regarded most of these practices as acceptable. Paul was aware that most of the Corinthian believers came from pagan backgrounds. However, in these verses, Paul makes clear that a worldly culture and your pre-conversion past cannot characterize your life as a Christian. See with me the clear command in verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Do not be deceived. Paul is calling the Corinthians to realign their lives with Scripture's teaching. He's saying that deception is possible. It's possible to be in the church and be deceived about what God's Word says. He says that if these members do not repent, they are headed toward the destiny of the world, which is eternity in hell. The Apostle Paul agrees with the Apostle John, who writes in 1 John 3.9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Sure, Christians are still sinners upon conversion, but they are repentant sinners. This command in verse 9 reminds us that the Bible knows nothing of I'm okay, you're okay theology. 
what the Bible calls being deceived, we cannot call friendly disagreement. God's people cannot agree to disagree about what God so plainly and seriously condemns. Instead, we must do as the Apostle Paul does here for the Corinthians. We must speak the truth in love. We must do so graciously. We must do so compassionately. But we must do so straightforwardly, knowing that the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Paul says, don't be deceived that you can live like the unsaved and be saved in the end. In short, Paul is warning against hypocrisy. What can lead to such deception? What can lead people to believing that they're right with God or they're not? Believing that they can live as Christians and yet also live like the world? I want to point out three things. A person's view of God, a person's view of Scripture, and a person's view of sin. A person's view of God. A belief that God is not perfectly holy. That if He really wanted to, He could allow sinful people into heaven. A low view of Scripture, its authority or lack thereof, a person's view and love of sin. The flesh tempts to dismiss the clarity of Scripture and persuades that it is intellectually untenable for the Bible to mean what it so plainly means. This is a book written 2,000 years ago or even after that. Are you telling me that it's true today in a different culture, in a different context? That is what we're saying. Deception leads to a personal downgrade theologically, which leads to their downgrade morally. And how often have we seen this? That people compromise doctrinally because they seek to compromise morally. People choose to disbelieve matters doctrinally because it clashes with their desire for sin. And what we must do is we must take God at His word, knowing that what He commands is best for us. There's a warning here in these verses for both Christians and non-Christians that sin deceives and keeps us from God. Sin keeps us from knowing God and enjoying God. It keeps us from being the kind of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers we are called to be. And if sin is persisted in, in unrepentance, it might keep you from Him forever. Paul reminds the Corinthians that their Christian lives should be marked by ongoing repentance and distinct Christian living. Non-Christians here today, I believe that God has afforded you a merciful opportunity to contemplate your life and your destiny. What a clear passage of Scripture that lays before you the reality that God has given us as to who will enter into eternal life. The unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. And not just this kind of unrighteousness in which habitual unrepentant sin of all sorts is indulged in. A single sin will keep you from heaven. Only the pure enter God's presence. Where will you find such holiness? Where will you find such washing? I encourage you as we look at verse 11 that you will find such cleansing, such washing, such justification, salvation in Christ alone. A question you may be asking of this text so far is what are we to make of this vice list and eternal security? Is Paul stating that isolated acts of unrighteousness lead people to hell? What if you've been greedy this week? Maybe your wife asked if you want two scoops of ice cream and you responded, two? I'll take three. 
Chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream may have never costed you so much. Paul does not mean that anyone who commits such a sin at any time is excluded from eternal life. The Scripture understands, God understands, that Christians, even after conversion, are not perfect. And yet, here's what we must affirm. There are degrees of rootedness, habitual persistence, hard-hearted indulgence and indifference that call into question professions of faith and cause should cause self-examination. Those who devote themselves to ungodly behaviors are forming lifestyles that are contrary to God's will and the Christian life. The Bible throughout teaches eternal security and yet we must take the warning in these verses seriously. If your life is defined by these sins, dominated by these sins, as well as similar sins unlisted, you may not be bound for heaven. These verses call us to examine whether we have been deceived about the sins that we are pursuing. And calls us to a holy life. We see in verses 9 and 10 that God's kingdom excludes unholy people. But Paul also offers a second essential reminder for holy living. God's salvation transforms unholy people. God's salvation transforms unholy people. The gospel brings good news in light of the bad news. And what we're going to see in verse 11 is one of the most glorious transitions in all of Scripture. Look at it with me. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul states that the Christian's The Corinthians' pre-Christian identity and sins do not define them anymore. They've been washed, sanctified, justified. You can't quite see it in your English translation, but the word but is used three times in verse 11 for emphasis. It reads, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. You've been changed, Christian. And that change should be marking how you live in the present. Paul is teaching that our new lives in Christ should make itself apparent in new lifestyles. Notice with me the verb tenses in verse 11. These are critical to observe. Each of these elements of salvation took place at the time of conversion. Washing, sanctification, justification have been accomplished and applied once for all. Let's take each of these theological terms in turn. First, washed. This is where God removes the impurity of our transgressions and forgives us our sins. It is a spiritual cleansing from all that is past and a renewal for all that is future. This washing takes place at regeneration when a person is born again. And this kind of spiritual cleansing was prefigured in Ezekiel chapter 36 and is a promise of the new covenant. We know from Scripture that we are washed through the blood of Christ and that that washing is depicted in baptism. As the hymn says, what can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sanctified. This is where God removes our unholiness and declares us holy through Christ. It's being set apart from the world and dedicated to God. 
Notice in verse 11 that sanctified occurs before justified. I believe the order of sanctification before justification supports the idea that Christians now possess a holy relationship with God. In other words, sanctification in this passage is a definitive status of holiness through Christ. So we see in Scripture that sanctification is both definitive as well as progressive. It is positional and practical. Christians grow in sanctification because we have been sanctified. And this objective status, standing that we possess, enables us to enjoy God's presence now, today. Paul actually began the letter of 1 Corinthians by writing to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Since Christians have been set apart for God, they are to live in a way that reflects our positional holiness. Justified. This is where God declares sinners righteous and at peace with God through the imputed righteousness of Christ that is received by grace through faith. This speaks to our new standing before God. That though we have done wrong, we have been declared righteous based on the merits of Christ alone. This is speaking to the removal of our guilt and the giving of peace with God. As with sanctification, justification is also definitive. But note this, it's also unwavering. Once a person has been declared justified, they are forever justified. So Christian, in verse 11... Know that washing, positional sanctification, and justification occurred at your conversion. These aspects of salvation granted you a new nature, new life, new affection. They enable you to serve a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you became a Christian, your sin-enslaved nature was changed. It no longer defines who you are. Its mastery was broken and you were set free. As we sung earlier, God breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. In summary, Paul uses these three terms to communicate the new identity that believers have. They are washed and cleansed of sins. They are holy before God. And they are declared to be in the right before God. Paul's point to the Corinthians is that taking legal action against other believers is incompatible with their new status in Christ. And I wonder what sins we are committing that are incompatible with our new status. Verse 11 explains that this transformation has taken place in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The New Testament sings uniformly that salvation is accomplished through the person and work of Christ and applied by the Spirit of God. Our spiritual change is grounded in history. What Christ accomplished through His perfect obedience, His substitutionary death for sinners, His resurrection from the dead, and His ascension to God's right hand. According to Acts 4, Christ's name is the only name by which men must be saved. The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts. He opens our eyes to see the beauty, sufficiency, and glory of Christ in the gospel. Indeed, it is by the Holy Spirit that we have been changed, and it is by the Spirit that we experience change day by day. This salvation was owing not to anything we have done, 
but owing to God's grace. Salvation is a work of God done on behalf of undeserving sinners such that anyone can receive the gospel freely by faith. Through this passage, God is teaching us that living in the flesh is incongruent with the newness of life that we've experienced by the Spirit. The gospel has provided us, friends, a double cure. Salvation from sin's guilt and its power. God's grace in the gospel is a grace that will pardon, but also a grace that will cleanse us within. The gospel pardons Christians from their unholy past, and the gospel empowers Christians for purity today and the future. Before Christ, holiness was impossible. In Christ, holiness is actual and obtainable. Now we must be clear that this verse is not teaching that we are free from sinful desires or temptations or that we will walk in perfect holiness upon conversion. But it does clearly teach that God's spiritual work in our lives has real, inevitable effects on our physical life of obedience. There's also wonderful hope in this passage for sinners. That no person has sinned too grievously, too extensively to be saved. Whether you've given yourself over to one of these sins, all of these sins, or a litany of sins not recorded in this passage, God can save you from your sin and from yourself. See in the Corinthians and in the Apostle Paul himself a testimony of God's mercy to sinners. A murderer. People from a pagan background, saved, changed, and used for God's glory. Unbeliever, this passage, God is speaking through this passage and telling you to recognize that you are lost and need to be found. You are dead and need to be made alive. You are damned and need to be saved. You are guilty and need to be at peace with God. You are unholy and need to be sanctified. You are guilty and need to be at peace with God. And the good news for you to hear, unbelieving friend, is that God saves. Those sins can be forgiven. Those lifestyles can be done away with. God changes the leper's spots through the gospel. And if you believe on Jesus Christ, if you turn away from your sin and confess your sin to God, your past will be buried in a grave outside of Jerusalem where Christ died in the place of sinners and rose again. God will forgive you. He will credit to you a righteousness not your own. And He will change you. Within this text is the gospel in miniature. God is holy. We are sinners. Christ is the Savior of all who come to Him in faith. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow if you come to Christ. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be wool if you repent of your sins, Isaiah 1. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9. As the great hymns of the Christian faith testify, look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you will be today if you believe. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all of their guilty stains. There's also wonderful news 
in this passage for the Christian. That Christian, you have been washed, sanctified, justified. You are not who you used to be. Yes, we are still weak. We falter. But we have been decisively changed. We have hope that God is making us into who we will ultimately become. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So let us walk in this transforming grace of God. God will give us grace that will empower us to triumph over all of the competitors of our joy in God. This passage reminds us that Christians are saints. God has changed our identity and our status. He has changed our nature and our destiny. And God gives us grace to change today. We can turn away from pornography. We can turn away from greediness. We can turn away from idolatry. We can turn away from all the sins that so easily entangle us and find new freedom in Christ. You are not what you were. You are becoming what you are. And soon you will be like Christ. We've seen in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, that Paul gives the Corinthians two essential reminders that are meant to spur them on to holy living. First, God's kingdom excludes unholy people. And second, God's salvation transforms unholy people. The kingdom of God does not belong to the wicked. does not belong to the unrepentant. It belongs to those who have been made righteous in Christ by the merit of Christ's person and work and who live righteously through the transforming power of the gospel. This passage provides both a warning and a promise. On the one hand, the warning calls us back from the precipice of presumption. That surely I'm a good enough person to go to heaven. Surely I've done enough good things to go to heaven. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? The unholy are excluded from God's kingdom. On the other hand, Paul's promise calls us back from the precipice of despair. That we can flee hopelessness and be encouraged that God makes the unholy holy. And He is making us increasingly holy today. God makes us holy instantaneously at conversion and then progressively throughout our Christian lives. He will do so ultimately at the return of Christ. So we should be chastened and sobered by the warning and we should be thrilled and empowered by the promise. Swindlers, homosexuals, thieves, sexually immoral people, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, Such were some in the Corinthian church. Such were some at Liberty Baptist Church. Such were some who will be in heaven. There will not be idolaters in heaven. But heaven will be full of people who once were, but have been changed through the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this gospel that pardons and cleanses within. We pray, Lord, that we would remove the old life 
and walk in newness of life that you have granted us in our salvation. Pray that you would call the unregenerate to yourself and awaken them to the glory of this gospel message and do so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.